welcome to the Murder Club podcast. This podcast is an extension of the Murder Club get-togethers, where a group of us meet every couple of weeks to discuss some true crime. Uh, we usually do a serial killer or we might do an unsolved case. Now, Murder Club itself was began by our friend Beth, who can't be with us today, but she does hope to join us on some future podcasts. I'm Lee, and I'm joined by some of the more hardcore members of Murder Club, that being Claire, Chris and Ben. And um, Murder Club itself started, I think it was about 2016, is that right, Claire? Yep, <clears throat> so it started in May 2016, and our first case was the Black Dahlia, which was a really interesting case. There was a large group of people that attended, probably about 10 of us. We used to meet at Rise on Deansgate, so it was quite a different venue to where we are now. Um, and a lot of the people that started off there didn't actually come back. I think they didn't right. know what to expect. Yeah. Um, a lot of people have the view whenever we mention Murder Club that it's about kind of murder mystery dinners or that you get actors in to kind of reenact some murder scene. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's not like that. It's a true crime discussion. And um, there were a handful of us from that initial meeting that continued and became regulars and from there. Personally, myself, I've been since day one of the meetings. That was three and a half years ago. So what was it like, that first one? Was it quite good or did people leave or were they not interested, some of them? No, people were... I think everyone was really interested. Mm. There were maybe one or two of us. I know certainly from my perspective, I always like to research the cases beforehand just so that I have a bit more background information before I move into um, the actual case meetings. A lot of people didn't. I think a lot of people didn't know what to expect at the first meeting. So a lot of people turned up not really knowing what Mm. to expect. But Beth always prepares quite a comprehensive case booklet. And she's done that since day one. So uh, the the booklets were given out to everybody and we we worked through them very much in the same way that we still do now. It followed pretty much the same format. Lots of people chipped in and we actually came to some quite amusing and quite wild (laughs) conclusions on that case as to potentially why the killer potentially could have killed the Black Dahlia. I mean, Mm. it was an unsolved case, but we came to some conclusions about who we thought did it and why. Yeah, that's basically the format, isn't it? We'll go through each case quite methodically, look at the evidence, look at the suspects, and then if it's somebody that's been caught, we'll then discuss their motivations, uh, or if it's an unsolved one, we'll put our theories forward. Uh, so, Ben, how long have you been going? Ooh, I think it's about a year and a half. Not sure. Uh, I remember my first case was Oscar Pistorius. Oh, right. Which was an amazing case. I knew bits about it, but coming into the murder club, learned so much more about the background and his history and just having the people there there were certain people that joined in that knew more about it mm-hmm. and learning about the cases from a different perspective it was amazing to, to start yeah. on that one chris yeah i think i started coming just after you did lee and i remember my first case was the mystery of room 1046 oh yeah um, yeah typically we'll we'll look at the unsolved cases as well I mean, the thing that struck me about Murder Club is it's just so unique and so diverse. It's a true crime discussion group, but not necessarily um, attracting the, the kind of people that you would imagine. No, it's not. You know, it's, it's a, such a, a strange phenomenon and attracts such a different array of people that you would expect. So you might expect goths and yeah, such, yeah. which we don't have. 
and um, we certainly want more of. <laughs> and by we, I mean me. <laughs> but like, it's it is across the board, and it's the the level of interest I think that's quite intriguing as well. It's like a lot of people are interested in true, in true crime, but to commit your whole Saturday night to discuss things of this nature that are grisly and ostensibly at least repellent is. Uh, it's a level of commitment that most people don't have. So the thing that always intrigues me are people's reasons why they would come to this thing and why they would want to talk about these cases and such macabre subjects. And that that was my takeaway, at least initially, from Murderclub. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing that is such a diverse group of people. It can be people from any ages, any backgrounds at all, but they all have this thing in common. And I imagine that, you know, true crime isn't something that you can talk to uh, with just anybody is it i mean you know you mentioned that you're into serial killers or true crime and you know people give you funny looks exactly people yeah. people assume yeah. things you know I mean, right, one yeah. of the best ways i've heard murder club described uh, was a lady that's unfortunately she doesn't come anymore um francesca but she does she did describe it in one of the best ways i can remember which was like it's like a book group you know everybody goes away and studies a certain case and comes back with ideas and it really is like the ones that I enjoy the most personally are unpicking a, a killer's brain, you know, um, because I, re- I heard this thing uh, quite recently and it was like it was a tweet or something. This guy had mentioned um, he watched all these serial killer documentaries and he was this was a throwaway comedy thing. Right. But he said that this was. It was all that they hated women, and this was a this was a theme that went across the board. And I, I honestly, th- I think that it goes deeper than that. Obviously, if you were to even on a superficial level look at killers like uh, Dahmer or Nielsen that had zero interest in women, not that that matters, but obviously, like the hatred of women there is not really necessarily a factor, you know. And I, I think there's there's something compelling about it um, in the sense that. People can see aspects of themselves in killers and will go on to, I think, the reasons why. We're all interested in true crime and we all have this creepy little obsession. But uh, that's the thing that fascinates me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think it's interesting because the number of people I find that I mention that I go to Murder Club and then say, oh, yeah, I watch loads of CSI and yeah, actually I'm yeah. interested in that. Yeah. And it's something you find people don't openly talk about that's, until you mention Murder Club. Say, yeah. And then everybody seems to have that fascination with it and everybody seems to watch some sort of true crime or whether their interests are in sort of the forensic side or like the, the psychology of why people are driven to kill, things like that. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people do have that morbid curiosity. About yeah, it's much more people. about that, isn't it? It is about understanding the psychology. I think for me, a lot of it is to do with the hunt, understanding how, how this person got caught, what mistakes they made. Chris, can you remember when you first got into true crime? I imagine it was probably when you were a teenager. Yeah, I mean, um, I can remember having a uh, just a, a, a real morbid streak as a mm. kid, right? So, like, I, I don't know, for whatever reason, I guess, you know, you have your adolescent reasons why you think skulls are cool and why, you know, you listen to metal. And, mm. you know, it's, it's a way of rebellion, I think. Yeah. Um, but when I really, you know, went down that rabbit hole, um, I can actually remember and pinpoint, and it was a lot later than that, because mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I had a I had an interest in it. I remember having books on like Moore's murders and stuff when I was a kid, but I, I don't think I ever really engaged with the subject. I had a I had a girl, 
all right? <laughs> I never met her, but like I got talking to her online and I became quite obsessed with her, right? Mm. And I think it's what the kids say, right? Ghosted me. Yeah. So she met another guy and, you know, she went off to go do that. And I was there like, you know, yeah, pretty much <laughs> with these murderous thoughts and <laughs> and this un, un, uh, yeah unfulfilled rage. No, absolutely not. Like I just wanted to put myself into something. I wanted to immerse myself in a subject. And the whole time I've been talking to this girl, right, we would watch serial killer documentaries and talk about things like that. And it was, in fact, like a lot of people in you know, uh, difficult situations turned to Charles Manson. Of course, yeah. I did. Yeah. And um, I became absolutely obsessed with the subject just because with the manson family i feel like it's it's got everything it almost transcends being put on film there are so many layers to it and at the center of it all is this little man with this almost demonic persona right this is a real life devil so to look at him and as the most reviled figure and just to, because I'm very tangential, just to mention, you know, like the film Natural Born Killers, I always think of that as an example. And there's this one scene where Mick is being asked by this reporter, he's like, this reporter who is uh, doing true crime documentaries, right? And he's like, he beats John Wayne Gacy, and he's, he's all this and that. And he says, did I beat Manson? And the reporter says, no. And Mickey says, well, it's hard to beat the king. He is synonymous with evil. He sort of had this perception of, of him as this little devil, this devil-type figure. So looking into him, and then when you look into it, there's layered conspiracies. You know, there's music, it's Hollywood, it's violence. It's got everything that you could possibly want in a story. And I just became completely immersed in it. And this figure, but also the... the uh, the, the layers and, and tentacles and everything else associated with the story, and I went down the rabbit hole mm. and never looked back. What age were you then? Do you remember? I think I was like I was like late twenties, obviously. Yeah, really? yeah. Because right. yeah, so, so during your teen years, you weren't sort of fascinated with serial killers. I think then? I was. I think in my teen years, I was like I always say I was emo before emo was a thing. Mm. <laughs> you know, like yeah. I was just obsessed with anything macabre and dark. And not specifically limited to serial killers, but I think it was like when you when I found this well of uh, documentaries and such on YouTube, and you could go down and any yeah. any um, killer or anything, you could find information about it so readily accessible. Mm -hmm. As a kid, I'd watch anything like that. Um, I remember my ex saying like, th th "This was a weird thing to say to somebody, right? You want people to think that you're crazy." Which, which, if if you consider like the case I ended up being obsessed with was Charles Manson, right? And he kind of played that insane game the whole his There's whole a lot life. Of power in that, isn't there? There is. You can weaponize crazy, mm -hmm. right? I saw Joker this week. Yeah, and it's incredible. Mm -hmm. It's disturbing, and is I, I feel like Joker is so close to like the paradigm of how a serial killer is formed, yeah. because like you know, um, Dennis Nielsen said it. Right, when he was talking about Hannibal Lecter, and he said the uh, implausible thing about Hannibal Lecter is the illusion of potency, you know, the idea that he's in control and he's a puppeteer, when in fact, like a lot of the, these true crime figures that we look at in Murder Club, they're not potent figures, they are derelicts and people that are caught up in like a tsunami of circumstance, you know, and they are driven 
to do these things, not necessarily to excuse them, but that they they're just not holding the they're not holding the strings, they're not holding the cards. Mm-hmm. They are just losers. Yeah. They find this this way of um, expressing themselves, you know, but it's it's obviously vile and yeah. sick. But yeah. I got into it, I think, partly because of my brother. My brother is a couple of years older than me. I used to, I remember him reading the Zodiac book, and he also, I remember him stealing the Sunday supplement. He used to uh, deliver papers, and he stole this Sunday supplement magazine because he had a picture of Charles Manson. I remember seeing this picture, and you know, with Manson with the. That's going to be the one from, probably from the Y cover, because yeah. they released an album of music, which I, I still maintain that Charlie Manson was a fine musician, right? And I'm, hey, he had, listen, I watched Charlie Says, you know, the film that they did about it. was, you know, again, I think it's it felt. public information film with a cat, that. <laughs> Charlie Says. <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. Um, <laughs> I remember I, every time I think of Charlie yeah. Says, I think of Candace Says, the Velvet Underground song, but um, <laughs> but irrespective of that, um, he, he had a beautiful voice, right? And and I'm not in alone in thinking, I'm in good company, right? Neil Young liked his songs, Marilyn Manson, obviously, with the last name, um, covered his songs, and uh, Guns N' Roses did as well. And um, he, he was an incredible musician. I think he had a beautiful voice. Um, but then subsequently, after the murders, they released this album, uh, it's called Lie, uh, The Love and Terror Cult. And it's fantastic. Um, and it had that photograph, that iconic one with the, the buzzard nest hair, you know, that and that stare that could just yeah. like... I'm, I'm, I'm rhapsodizing a little bit. It's almost like I've got a bit of a thing for old Charlie Manson, but I don't, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, honestly, I find the, the iconography of it and I, I think fascinating. The, the thing with the Manson case is you hear it's all about him starting this, wanting to start this huge race war. But I think when we did it on, in Murder Club, it sounded to me like it was all about a drug deal that went wrong. I, I, I mean, there's a lot that. of mystique yeah. around it that perhaps isn't, it's built up to this huge thing when perhaps it isn't. You know? Absolutely. And I think that's, that is um, one of the things that's, that remains so fascinating about, about it is because you have all these conspiracy theories about you know, mass shootings, Sandy Hook, what have you. And with Charles Manson, I feel like there is a, a, a very credible conspiracy at the, he- at the center of it. And the health skeleton myth, I, I again was the dissenting voice, I think, in that particular mm-hmm. murder. Yeah. And um, I don't think for a minute that Charles Manson believed in the health skeleton mythos, which, you know, just to go over that, was the idea that with the murders, he would create a catalyst to start a race law. And then the Manson family would hide in a bottomless pit, come out, and for some reason, even though black people had taken over, they would want guidance from none other than Charlie Manson, which I don't think anybody would want guidance from Charles Manson at any point. I'm not sure Charles Manson wanted guidance from Charles Manson, but the you know this alternative theory, the thing that, that really sparked back for me uh, was a documentary uh, called Manson, The Final Words. And it's narrated by Rob Zomba, and it's, it's fantastic. And basically just it really explores this idea. It's, it's been explored elsewhere. The, the whole uh, Manson family, the Tate-Labianca murders, the catalyst wasn't Helter Skeller. It was, in fact, this drug deal gone bad, and the fact that Charles Manson felt like he'd assassinated a mem- member of the Black Panthers called Bernard Crow, which he confirms 
And again, hopefully at some point we'll go further down this and I can I can rant off a little bit more about this. But again, with the Hell of Skeletal Myth and starting off the race war, I don't believe that Charles Manson, um, this was his ultimate goal. I think that he might have fed this to his followers. He would feel, uh, feed them any old shit mm -hmm. to get them thinking and, and doing what he wanted, which would generally speak, and I think, to, to have sex with Charles Manson. Yeah. Um, people that people that Charles Manson wanted him to have sex with, which, you know, was, I think, his, mainly his ultimate goal. I mean, he was a career criminal. But the idea that he was, he himself believed in Helen Skeller, to me, the, the, the big logic hole in that is that he finally had a platform, right? When he was arrested, that trial was the center of the world's attention. He had a platform. If he really believed in this race war, he could have said, and now I've got this microphone, hell the is coming down, tell everybody, the Beatles need to know. The Beatles were listening at that point. If he, re if he really wanted to tell them, he could say, look, your song said this and that, and he didn't. And like, where, where is you compare him to somebody like Dylan Roof, you know, the, uh, the Charleston shooter, who um, had this, it was an absolute vile white supremacist agenda. Yeah. But when he finally got a platform, he espoused what he wanted to kill for. Whereas Charles Manson never, he, he rejected Helen Skeller from the start. That's interesting. But it's an interesting case, I think, Manson as well, in that he's one of the few cases that we've covered where he didn't actually himself commit the murders. And that sets it apart It's as funny that he's classed different. as the king then, isn't it? In, yeah. in, in Absolutely, because, because like... Um, you know, um, the Hell of Skeletal thing, and if we'd go further down this and, and, and are able to uh, to go further into it, Vincent Bugliosa, who the, pro the prosecutor, needed a reason. He needed a reason why Charles Manson specifically wanted these killings to happen. Now, if this had been a, a catalyst of a drug deal and, Charles Man and everybody was kind of in on it, and Charles Manson, with these killings, sort of wanted to make everyone complicit, but he, the killings weren't really a focus of what he was doing, then he wouldn't be able to be indicted for first-degree murder. So, and, and everybody really primarily involved with the case, other than uh, Vincent Bugliose, who was the, uh, the district attorney, and Stephen Kay, I think, who was the prosecutor, rejects this idea, you know, and uh, no one really talks about this Helter Skeller idea, and... You know, the, the thing about it is that Vincent Bogosi wrote a book. You know, it's a lot sexier, right, to have a Hollywood murder that happens because of this insane pseudo-philosopher and this, this cult-like mentality, as opposed to what it really was, which was a yeah. scummy drunk, drug deal gone wrong that was done by Tex Watson, that Charlie Manson... I mean, I'm not saying the guy was innocent of anything. I mean, he shot this man, Bernard Crow. This guy was a guy that he, he, Charlie Manson was, you know, pure violence. He was pure prison. He didn't have a resolution that didn't involve violence, which is when you get into the Gary Hinman murders, which happened, well, murder, singular, there was only one guy, um, that Charlie Manson, like, this was all sorted out with Gary Hinman, when we go down this, if I can get into this more, that it was all sorted out, and Charlie Manson ran in there with a sword and cut Gary Hinman in the face. So, like, Charlie Manson was a violent man. He was, he abused women. He was misogynistic. And I think it's actually, I think it was Patricia Kramerinkel, one of the Manson girls, that said, has the quote, of Charlie was an excellent pimp. You know, he was, at his core, a career criminal, a pimp, and a violent person. 
Was he a, a messianic cult leader? I don't think so. I don't think that he really had, it, you know, whereas, you know, Jim Jones had this vision of what he wanted to do. And obviously many more people died at Jonestown. Like the Manson murders, if you're going to frame them as the, the, the canonical eight, <laughs> to, to borrow, borrow a phrase from like ripperologists and stuff, pales in comparison to what Jim Jones did. But at the same time, he, he didn't have that big vision for it. I think so for a second. So you're saying that Manson didn't perpetuate the Helter Skelter thing when he was. I think he did. I think he did. I think he perpetuated anything that the follow, because you got followers that do quote that, 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 that of that happening. But I don't believe that he believed in it himself. Yes. If you know what I mean, it's the same principle as with the LSD. So like Charlie Manson will give his followers LSD, and you know when the followers are watching, like there's this fantastic documentary. Um, it's Manson and Lost Tapes, and it, it's um, a couple of the Manson girls, I think Diane Lake and somebody I can't remember now, um, watching themselves back. And they're thinking, and they're like, you know, Charlie gave us all the LSD and all the acid, but never did we see him taking the amounts we did, if any. So I think it was a similar kind of thing with Helter Skelter, where Charlie was feeding this to his followers but not necessarily imbibing himself, you know, like the, the, the first rule of drug dealing, don't get high off your own supply. Yeah. That's exactly what he was doing. Yeah, 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 I've always seen him like a mafia boss. He's in charge, he's using whatever he can to keep those people in his control. Yeah. So, yeah, he's making up stuff that they believe to do whatever he wants to do. He's feeding them LSD. Which would merely have sex with them. He's a classic yeah. cult leader. Yeah, he, he, he had a cult-type mentality. Yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah. I wonder how much the media has had to do with making this thing perhaps bigger than it was, or do you think it is down to Manson's personality? You know, because I a, think it's both. Yeah. I, I think, think it's both yeah. as well. Yeah, I think, and I think yeah. the fact it was the tape of the Bianca murders as well, Sharon such Tate, a high-profile yeah. thing, Sharon yeah. Tate, that I think the media obviously picked up on that, and it was very topical at the time. She was an actress at the time. Mm. Her husband Roman Polanski was obviously big film director, very much in the spotlight in Hollywood at the time. So, so I think it's funny it was... You look at entertainment as well, like... like we, we are here on Time magazine? I mean, that Yeah, he was a Time magazine, but like, even... even state, I mean, it? even now, films that are being made are either directly or di indirectly reference the Manson murders. Mm -hmm. Like, you look at the, uh, the Firefly family from uh, the Rob Zombies, that's the trilogy of the House of Thousand Corpses, Devil Rejects, and Three from Hell, which I've not seen yet. Um, but that whole family was idea, and it's interspersed. Those, all those films are interspersed with clips from the Manson family, and even as as far as music, I, I remember one uh, one anecdote that's pretty cool about it. Not cool, but you know, um, it was Trent Reznor who recorded the Downward Spiral, which is like a seminal, like I hate the word seminal because it sounds like a, a DJ, but um, but like it's a fantastic album. The Downward Spiral was recorded at 10,050 CL Drive. And Trent Reznor recorded this there uh, for whatever reason, obviously wanting to kind of imbibe some of the, the atmosphere of the place and whether that's right or wrong, I don't know. But he was, Trent Reznor was confronted by the sister of Sharon Tate and she asked him, uh, are you trying to profit off my sister's death? And Trent Reznor, right, industrial metal icon, was kind of just dumbfounded and then he, he recounts like going back to wherever he was staying and being like, fuck Charles Manson, you know. But that's the kind of legacy and the yeah. kind of things that people wanted. So many people have drawn on this idea of the family because it's, it's just too cinematic to ignore. Yeah.
You should go mastermind with that. I probably should with this case. And I don't think I'd pick that or I'd pick a band because people that pick like you know the Persian Empire or something always they always fall apart. I would pick a finite subject, <laughs> and I would stick with it. Yeah. So that was that sounds like that was the case that really got you into absolute crime without question. What about you, Ben? To begin with, it wasn't really a case. I was always fascinated by horror films. Mm-hmm. That was how. So a bit like you, I uh, didn't get into true crime till like mid twenties or something. But I loved horror films, and I remember watching a documentary. It was about the history of horror films and how, when society changes, horror films change and things like that. Oh, yeah, and it's it's really good. Mark Gatiss, you should. Oh yeah, I've seen I've seen that. It was on BBC Four, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. it was. And he was talking about how true crimes had influenced the films. Mm. And he talked about Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Psycho being based on Ed Gein, and it blew my mind because I was just like, how how the hell could they? these films be based on a person. There's no way someone's done these crimes. And that was when I went away and Googled it and found, like you did on YouTube, just tons of documentaries on these people. The rabbit hole. Yeah, and I was like, who is this Ed Gein? He can't really have been running around with chainsaws, chopping up people. He's very different to what what goes on in the film, but... This was like a twenties, was yeah. it? Not not teenagers. No, no, no. Never, never come across it mm. until about then. Right. I don't know why. Yeah. It's funny you two are talking about using the internet or YouTube, but you know, I, I, I have never the wireless. Yeah. <laughs> I used to get this. Uh, I think when I first really started to get into it, as I say, I was sort of influenced by my brother, and he was telling me little bits of pieces and. Uh, it was also the Yorkshire Ripper case because that was happening whilst I was growing up. And I just remember my mum and dad talking about it. And I remember my mum and her sister and her, her mother, they were reading the evening news and there was a headline about him killing somebody else because he killed two in Manchester where I grew up. It was really very real from an early age for me. And I've always been interested in the Ripper case particularly. I'd say that is probably my favourite case. And then probably when I was about 12, 13, there was these magazines that came out called Murder Casebook. Don't know if you've yeah, I've, I, I, yeah, the ones with the DVD. No, well, the DVDs. I'm oh, sorry. Around that then. had a it had a VHS. I don't know if it was. A VHS. <laughs> no, it had a VHS cassette. Cassette. Something like that. No, they didn't even have that. It, it was just a magazine, and the first one was the Yorkshire Ripper. And I remember saving up my pocket money and uh, buying it. And from then on, I used to. I got quite a few of them. I remember getting uh, Bundy. Uh, Berkovich and uh, I think the one that I've always been interested in was one Jeremy Bamber. Do you know that case? I'm not familiar with that. No, that's, this was a guy, quite a rich guy, that was accused of killing his family. They lived in a stately home. It's an English case and it was like mid 80s. And I, I remember being really interested in that one and that was on the news as well because he had set it up like it was his sister that had killed everybody. And there's all this footage of him crying at the funeral, putting on this Oscar-winning performance, and then he was arrested. Very like Chris Watts-like, if anybody's followed that, you know, like the, the guy in America that he um, killed, obviously killed his uh, wife and daughters, and the first, he was interviewed and had, you know, the fakest kind of reaction to it, yeah. and was instantly suspicious. With this real, like, kind of veneer to him. Yeah. Real slippery, sort of Bundy-esque kind of customer. <laughs> Yeah. I think after that, after my mid-teens, I dropped out of it a bit. You know, I was into horror films and stuff. This is the good thing I like about Murder Club. There's loads of cases and serial killers I don't know that much yeah. about. So, you know, I, I, I don't tend to 
researched them before coming. So I like that aspect of finding out. So Claire, what about you? When did you get into it? Um, mine probably slightly differently in my teens. I started mm. getting interested in forensics and that was when I was at school just thinking in terms of career-wise. And I just thought it was fascinating how police worked with forensics just to track down certain things in true crime, not necessarily just murder cases, um, but just how they pieced together the evidence, how they yeah. gathered evidence together and how they could prove certain things off the basis of that evidence that they found. Um, I was also from my teens, sort of probably early to mid-teens, quite interested in horror films as well. I hate them now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I was going to mention Absolutely that. hate them now. But yeah, I was a massive horror fan when I was sort of late teens through to about mm. mid-twenties. But yeah, I mean, there was always the interest there, not so much the real gory stuff that we get now in current films, but the, the more the classics I quite liked. But then I used to watch a lot of crime programmes on TV, really, as well. And, and it was even things like reenactments, so things like Crime Watch, not that I like watching Crime Watch now either, <laughs> but things like Crime Watch even, where yeah. you'd, you'd get the reenactment of a case where somebody had been murdered, for example, mm. and I used to like watching how they did the, the sort of review the case and, and the timeline of what actually yeah, happened. Yeah. Um, and from there, really, I think, I just kind of started hearing about various things. When I was a, at uni in Manchester, I moved up here in 1994. So it was around that time there was things going on with the Shipman case in the 90s oh, yeah. as well. So it was kind of fairly topical to the area that I was living in at the time as well. And really, my interest kind of sparked even more from there and since then, I've just I've always been quite interested in documentaries, TV programs, and so on about true crime. And for me, the particular interest is partly about the forensics, which I think is fascinating, but also the the kind of psychology of why certain people do certain crimes. And a lot of criminals we find in cases that we've covered, and I know the case we're covering later today. There seems to be a mental health element to it, which, of course, is very topical now as well. And I find that quite interesting as well to see, are some of these people genuinely psychopaths? Are they sociopaths or are they just kind of a bad egg that's gone a bit wrong, committed a crime on the spur of the moment? And I think I can guess what your favourite case is. <laughs> <laughs> Ted Bundy, of course, who, as we know, is the hottest serial killer. Um, I wouldn't dispute that. <laughs> and from, yeah, exactly. <laughs> when I get going, I'm going to take a knock. <laughs> in terms of serial killers, bearing in mind he was in the 70s, he was a good-looking chap at the time. But what I find particularly interesting about the Bundy case is the fact that he was an educated guy, he trained in law, so he knew the system, he knew... Didn't he fail everything at law, though? Was that... Yeah, I mean, he was. He kind of, sort of did fail some things. He, he, he had a bit of... A kind of political career on the yes. side as well so he was kind of involved in quite a few things but he was a very popular guy and I just find it fascinating that he was able to commit crimes across six different states and that he evaded capture for so many years escaped. he escaped Once, three times three times yeah. so he escaped three times went on the run eventually gave himself up because he was hungry stuck That's in the nice. woods after one of his escapes where he jumped out of a courthouse building and i just find it fascinating the way that even going on to his trial how the judge allowed him to represent himself in the trial and even in the closing remarks at the trial where the judge said to him you know I, I respect you I don't hold anything against you and actually I really would have liked to have worked with you it just goes to show 
that it is it really charmed crazy. The judge, hadn't it? it charmed the judge. Yeah. It charmed absolutely mm. everybody. He was a media star because it was the first ever televised murder trial in the States. Oh, right. So, so he, he kind of captured the nation. He kind of became the sort of sweetheart killer, as it were, really, mm. because a lot of women that used to turn up in court used to just be sort of sat there swooning whilst he was <laughs> up in the dock, which is really crazy. But he, he just had this knack of charming absolutely everybody, whether they were male or female. A lot of the prison officers said he was a nice guy. All the lawyers, the people he's involved in, even a lot of the police, when he dealt with them, said he was very charming and that he was very polite and seemed to be a nice guy. But it was strange as well that he managed to hold down a relationship with somebody whilst he was committing all these crimes and she was completely unaware of what was happening as well. So he was leading this holdable life and this is what I find particularly fascinating about that case. Yeah. I heard something recently and I don't think it was something I took away from the, when we did him in Murder Club that his motivation was rape and, and he just killed the women to avoid detection. Is that, do you think that's true or did he I get some he... sort of thrill of... I think he escalated in a lot of cases. I know some of the, the cases towards the end, um, I think a lot of it, there was obviously a sexual element to it. Some of the, the people he murdered, he had kind of a graveyard up in the woods that he mm. built where he was dumping bodies and some of the bodies didn't have heads. He kept some of the heads. He did some fairly grim things with some of the heads that we won't go into on a it's, potential we go family, into it. This is family listening uh, podcast. This is a, the family not listening to this. We can go into it. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah. Oh, we do a camper, we'll get it. <laughs> well, it, it is funny, days. isn't it? You know, you've got someone like Bundy who, on the surface, is this very sort of ordinary guy and he, yeah. and he can function well in society. And then he's doing those things with the skulls or whatever. But yeah. you've got someone like Ed Kemper and you could, you could probably look at him or somebody else like Dharma and think, yeah, that's a weirdo. I don't think you could. I think, I think, yeah, I think with a lot of the serial killers, I think they have their own unique type of charisma. And it's not a it's not a singular uh, type. It's you know like with Ted Bundy, obviously the, the you know he had the the well spoken. He re basically redefined the concept of a monster, because I think prior to Ted Bundy, uh, people thought of monsters. Maybe Charles Manson as well. People thought of monsters as hideous. You know, like Frankenstein's monster is, is sewn together from uh, pieces of the dead. You know, whereas Ted Bundy is this. You know, he has this veneer to him. And he is um, smooth, and somebody you wouldn't expect to do this, which is I think where the where the uh, the disconnect happened in people's minds is that they saw this guy, and he was handsome, and he had this you know he he was this front of respectability and charismatic, and charismatic, and yet he was so hollow ultimately, and any of these things that he pretended to be, he wasn't, and I think he, you know with the with the rape idea, I mean the first uh, assault that. You know, obviously, is uh, de definitively attributed to Ted Bundy was with part of a bed. You know, he he sexually assaulted a woman with part of a bed. I think it was. It was so that happened a few times. Yeah, it, it's like it's like he wasn't raping women as such. Mm. He was violating them. Mm. And there's a quote about quote from Ted Bundy. One of the few incisive quotes he gives is that murder is about possession. And I think Ted Bundy looked at the world as something to possess, and people as an extension of that. And that's why I always think that the, the best film about Ted Bundy is American Psycho, because it's not obviously directly about him or a biopic, but it is, it's what Ted Bundy would be like in the 80s, where he would have free reign to be the monster he always wanted to be. 
and everything about Patrick Bateman in American Psycho is defined by possession. And if you read the novel, he's constantly going on about all these things that he owns. And women are just another thing, you know. And, and I think Ted Bundy was the same way. I think he just wanted to possess people. And I think with going back to the the, uh, the charisma thing, whereas Ed Kemper was, you know, to, to segue on to him, he had the uh, the charisma that comes with being ineffectual. Like he was this bumbling idiot, and he hung around the police. Um, drinking tavern, was it called the Jury's Inn or something yeah. like that? With the Jury's Inn. Right. And he had this uh, this thing of, it can't be Big Ed because Big Ed's so stupid and, and bumbling and he's nine foot ten or something. <laughs> yeah, and, a little yeah. big love. Exactly. He's just, he's a fool, but then he would walk around and, and, and Ed Kemper talks about, you know, walking past a couple going out on a date and he says, where I'd love to be going. And he had a severed head in his back. You know, it's this calm, this horror that's this, this contained. And, he, and Ed, Ed Kemper actually bragged about the fact that he didn't go insane. He's like, a lot of people, this would send them insane. Mm. And he's like, I was sane throughout. Mm. It's the duality and the compartmentalization that goes with serial killers. And people that do horrible things in general, not to say I've done anything on the podcast. <laughs> but, like, um, but like this compartmentalization, and there's a part of me over here that's done this horrible thing. And then there's this part that's her husband and whatever else, like BTK again, a, 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 you know, a, a squirrel, a little bastard BTK. Um, <laughs> Visible character. Is. Yeah, he is. He is absolutely loathsome. But I mean, I think, and I think with, with, with killers like that, was, is, is like part of the thrill is keeping this normality and yeah. then having this other separate life where they are complete monsters. And then it's, it's almost the narcissistic element of those yeah, two yeah. coming together where a killer can say, I, I hold this together and I'm a monster. I'm both of these things and no one else could be like this. And no one's going to figure out my monstrous side because my, my actual disguise is, is too well constructed. Like Gacy, classic example. Yeah, absolutely. Like politician, Democrat. <laughs> by night. Yeah. Um, I, can, I can definitely understand them getting off on that. You know, I can understand the attraction myself of leading a double life. I think know? people do have it. Yeah. I think everybody has. Well, like that, That's the thing about like, looking at true crime and people that are outwardly, you know, they are monstrous. Mm. But like there are aspects of ourselves where like, you know, a lot of people have some kind of some sexual thought or what, whether it's something like that. For some reason, that's the first thing that came to my mind. I don't know what that says about me. <laughs> but people have these compartmentalized thoughts and they don't mesh with the actual persona or the mask of sanity mm. or whatever we put on. Um, so do you think yeah. it's just down to sociopathy? Then I don't know. I think, personally, I think it's quite a complex thing that with some people... I think it's chemicals in the brain that aren't quite balanced. With other people, it might be some sort of social, moral compass that's kind of out of mm -hmm. whack in terms of yeah. where we know what's right and wrong, so none of us would go out and kill somebody, where somebody else might think, actually, well, you know, they've, they've stolen something from me, so I've got every right to do that. So I think it's... I think it's different things for different people, to be honest. Yeah, because you might have a desire to kill, and I think some of us probably do occasionally. But what is it that stops us? It's 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 probably fear of getting caught. It's our conscience, ultimately. But with yeah. these killers, that's the bit that's missing, isn't it? Yeah. Or, or they enjoy creating this this person that is this killer. Yeah. I mean, it's like the case we're going to look at today, which I know we'll 
discuss a bit later, mm-hmm. but the guy, he actually knew James Holmes. He knew, and he, I don't know if you've looked into this yourselves, but he was having conversations with his girlfriend at the time on Google Chat, and he was talking about killing people. And he was saying, I know it's not something where you escape. So he he kind of was talking about potentially killing people. She didn't pick up on it. She thought he was just philosophising. But he was saying at that point that he knew that the consequences of his actions, he wouldn't get away with it. So I think some killers, I think, probably know that I'm going to do this and I'm going to be caught, there's no way out, and it's just kind of a final act of defiance where other people maybe like Ted Bundy because they can evade capture and he moved from state to state to state. I think there's maybe a sense of superiority that he was always that one step ahead of the police and evading capture. And I think it's quite a complex thing in terms of killers themselves. This is what fascinates me in terms of the mm-hmm. psychology of it, how it can be so different from one to the next. Yeah, I suppose with Bundy, you've got that narcissistic side, haven't you? Yeah. So he's clearly, I'm better than everyone. Look at this, I can beat you all. And he can charm his way out of places. It was... Yeah. So do you think to him it was like a huge game, you know, that I can be this ordinary guy by day, but by night I can just change and I can get away with it? I think in some cases, I think it probably was because he kept an eye on the newspapers in some cases, we found out, didn't we? And he was outside certain places where police were going into the student accommodation and he was nearby at the time watching these things happen. And again, it's that sense of, I guess, that sense of danger of, they don't know it's me and I'm mm. just sat here. Mm. And yeah, a lot of killers it's kind of the risk taken want the as press. well. I think they want the attention, they want the yeah. scrutiny that people like us give them. But I think it's also the buzz they get out of the risk of the mm. fact the police are within yeah. arm's reach and yet they don't even know it's me. And it's yeah. and you do hear about a lot of killers getting close to the police, like talking about Kemper. Kemper. Yeah. You know, it's almost like flirting with... Yeah, that's one of the things that, like, if you... If you look at a capture serial killer, which I think, you know, the the idea of the serial killer almost metamorphizing into a the mass shooter. Spree killer. The spree killer is is an interesting idea because it's just so much harder to be that type of serial killer now mm-hmm. where you go from you know, in America at least you go from state to state. And one of the things that helped Ted Bundy was the fact that the uh, the different police departments in the states didn't correspond with each other. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just harder with DNA evidence and such. Yeah. That's one of the things when we're talking about James Holmes, is that he had the uh, the diary, at least. He had his, his diary where he was weighing up the different options of how to kill a vast number of people. He thought about the idea of being a, a serial killer, and he said it's too personal, not enough kills, easily caught. Mm. So, like, the idea of, of that is... Obviously, he didn't. He was a different type of animal. I think that he didn't want to revel in the kill itself. He just wanted to create as much destruction as possible. Yeah. Whereas, like a you know, there's a process killer and a product killer, and the process killer like will revel in the act of killing itself, and then they've got the product killer like a dharma who want the the finished product. He wanted the unresponsive lover, right? He wanted a possession, just like Bundy in some ways, but like the, the actual killer itself, I think it's hard to be a serial killer now. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an interesting evolution. Yeah, I remember reading an article in, on BBC, I think it was, about why there were so many serial killers in the 70s. And they said it was down to the fact that all these cities started getting connected, you know, with motorway, freeways and stuff, that it just made them easier to travel about from one place to another and 
before detection. I read something about that. There was statistically a huge amount of truck drivers that were serial killers back in the 70s. perfect, isn't it? Like a child occupation. Yeah. California was growing at the time as well. Like you didn't have small communities where everyone knew each other. It was just a massive city. You could kind of get away with it yeah. at the time. But I have heard that uh, the FBI, I think, believe there is at least 50 serial killers active at any one moment in America. Right, even now? Yeah, because of the highways and stuff. Because you could drive out into the middle of nowhere, no one's going to know you've yeah. disappeared. I think you were mentioned before about Samuel Little. The guy that's been found out to be the most, supposedly the most confirmed, oh, yes. uh, yeah. most confirmed kills, yeah. only recently been discovered, and he has this avuncular kind of persona, persona, right? He's like a, like a an, an elderly grandfather type mm-hmm. figure, and, and his his type of charisma, going back to that idea, is so chilling because he is totally disarming, and when he's talking about the kills, he's talking, he's describing girls that he killed mm-hmm. and he's doing it in the most matter of fact way and obviously Samuel Little went back to I think the 70s and it's only recently been caught mm-hmm. when he is that type of killer but if the killers are good enough they're not going to get caught mm-hmm. depends a lot on your victim as well doesn't it exactly which is why people that so, no one's noticing are disappearing mm-hmm. like I recently watched something um, and there was a guy who was killing a lot of prostitutes and meth addicts and nobody, nobody knew these people were dying. Nobody thought it was one person. It was just ignored by the police until someone complained because his room, his house smelt, and that was when they found yeah. all the bodies. Yeah, you, <laughs> you, can, you can think that the police aren't going to be that enthusiastic to solve. Yeah, the, no. the, yeah. the idea of the, of the less dead. Mm-hmm. Of the, you know, that was the, the, the terminology employed. It's, it's pretty revolting terminology, really. Mm-hmm. But like, you look at like a Gary Ridgeway. Who, who preyed on uh, and was boring the, yeah I, I don't know like Gary Ridgway like as, as a guy I probably wouldn't want to go out for a drink with him but then again he's also a serial killer so I wouldn't want to go out for a drink with him but um, you know again like a, notoriously a low IQ but really um, proficient when it came to serial killing and um, you know was prior to Samuel Little the most prolific confirmed killer in American history and he preyed on prostitutes, and like we talk about the idea of a ruse, like Ted Bundy had the he had his bow, which was always really weird to me because Ted Bundy had this he had a cast and he had a bow. Can you help me with my bow because I've got a cast on? Well, why the hell do you need a bow if you wear a cast? But irrespective of that, Gary Ridgway would use his son, mm. like he'd have his picture of his son in his wallet, and that'd be a ruse to like lure these prostitutes into a. And such prostitutes, these women, you know, that he killed, um, but they were prostitutes incidentally, but they're also people. And there was a, an idea that he had his kid at one point in the car, and that was a way of lulling these women into a false sense of security where they killed. So, and obviously, him racking up the numbers that, like that, you've got to attribute that at least partially to the being the less dead and police not investigating mm-hmm. to, to the extent. I mean, look at the amount of media coverage surrounding the Tate by Bianca murders, and then compare it to, like, Ridgeway's kills, which no one seemed to give a shit about. Yeah. So as well as sociopathy and the other things we discussed, I've also heard this theory about a lot of serial killers having a bump on the head or some sort of head injury yeah, I've heard that has perhaps caused them. Because I know 
I know Peter Suckley did, though it wasn't widely reported that he did. Some sort of motorbike accident, he crashed into a, a lamppost or something. Yeah, supposedly damage to the uh, is it the prefrontal cortex. I am, of course, in my spare time, a brain surgeon, so I'm, I'm going to know this. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of killers have this damage to the front, frontal part of the head, um, some kind of noble head injury, which... I assume it does something. It scrambles the eggs that are in the brain. I think that's the technical yeah, the terminology. Um, I know, like, uh, Gacy was... I think he was beaten by his, his father. Um, I was pushed off a swing. Or maybe I'm conflating that with something, somebody else. Uh, but there's definitely a preponderance of serial killers that have this damage to the to the head. So is that supposed to remove the, the part that has the conscience? Yeah, absolutely. The, the damage the, the aspect of, of empathy. But as well as that, I mean, you've also got to have an urge to do these strange things, yeah. you know, like what Dharma did. So, I mean, where do you think that comes from? Is it just... They might have just been hungry. <laughs> they could have been hungry and harder. We've all been there. <laughs> but with him, wasn't he mixing up... He, he had an obsession with animal bones, didn't he? And, and yeah. finding out what was inside bodies. But he also... That's when he started masturbating, I think. Yeah. yeah, around that time that he had that, and he was sort of getting the two things. <laughs> I think so, mixed yeah. up, didn't he? So I mean, eventually, it's become one with you. yeah, a sexual thing for him. Yeah, and I think it was just the idea of it's it's like I said, it's it's ideas that people can have, and they can be innocuous. Mm. But uh, BTK mentioned Factor X, yes. right, or whatever it is, the intangible thing that separates us from people that want to do that, because a lot of the things like with Dharma, it's He's ascribed as having loneliness, you know, like that was his thing. I was just lonely, I didn't want him to leave. And, you know, that's a very relatable emotion. But yet when it goes into Jeffrey Dahmer's mind, it becomes something monstrous to where he would want to keep a person permanently. And he saw it as keeping the body. And the idea that it could be mixed in with, obviously if you see the film or read the comic book, which is amazing, of, of My Friend Dahmer, which is written by one of Jeffrey Dahmer's childhood friends, and the boy is just lost. He is completely without any kind of true friendship, really. You know, he has people around him, but he's lost in his own world. And his world centers around these these bones and these things that he did and this, this, this obsession with dead things and dead animals. And that obviously progressed into when he, he had the fantasies about the hitchhiker. And there's so much to the Jeffrey Dahmer story. But like the crucial thing to it, I think, is this com this early convergence with love and sex and death, and it's something that never left him. And I think that's a, that's at the root of his uh, psychopathy, definitely. Right. I think we'll uh, bring the podcast to an end there. Thanks, everybody. I hope anybody who's been listening has enjoyed it and will join us again. You can follow us on Twitter if you're interested. That's uh, Murder Club. MCR. We also have a Facebook page, so if you just put Murder Club True Crime Discussion Group into the search, you should find us on that. So, until next time, thanks very much, and we'll see you soon. And remember, if you can't do the time, don't do the crime.